So I don't know if anyone else. Yeah, there's somebody. I guess other people are going to show up. So we'll uh, have a quick word of prayer and get right into it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the state that you've given us and the time you've given us together. Yes, as we come before you this morning to worship your holy name, that you, we would do you honor in all that we say and do. We ask for an outpouring of your spirit on this church, that you would continue to lead us and guide us in all the things that we say and do, especially through the teaching and preaching of your word. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. All right, so moving on in what I call the Salvation Series, because yeah, I couldn't think of a better name. Uh, we did the last couple of times that I was able to be up here is the effectual call and regeneration, or actually in reverse order. I kind of mixed it up, not intentionally. Uh, so remember now, regeneration is what we call, or not what we call necessarily, but what the modern evangelical church calls born again. But we don't have the same understanding on that. Because being called and being regenerated, which is born again, also actually means you're not actually saved yet. See, that's the thing. Because it is the justification, the life and death of Christ, that actually saves us. And although these things are not separated by wide gaps, there's still a procedure that we go through. So if we're looking to say, are you born again? We're probably asking the wrong question. Because if you're just born again, you haven't come to the full knowledge of salvation yet, which is neglected largely in the church. It is a series of steps, and the most important step, I don't know if I want to call it the most important step, but a really important step comes right instantaneously after this regenerating of the spirit, and that's faith and repentance, which is where we are today. So. Which one is first? You know, theologians argue about those things one way or the other. I kind of go with Sinclair Ferguson on this. It's actually a moot point. So he, he phrases it like this, says it's two sides of the same coin because one automatically produces the other. I personally lead toward repentance and faith in that particular order. And the reason why I do that is because the scriptures teach that faith is the gift of God. And where do we get that gift from? Well, we first of all get it by being called by God, by being regenerated by the Holy Spirit, and then offering up what we are going to talk about today, repentance, which we are able to do because of the gift of faith. So we could really look at it like this. Faith then becomes the effect of regeneration. The fact that you've genuinely been born again regenerated, then the gift of faith is the byproduct in the only byproduct of genuine regeneration. Fake regeneration, no faith, and we see that in a lot of churches, in a lot of professing Christians, for people that, you know, go strong for a while and then fall away or reject altogether. So what we look for is the genuineness of these things, and that's what proves out. Our biggest problem in the church today, I think, is the easy believism that just says, well, just invite Jesus into your life and you're good to go. And people believe that, and there's no reflection of any change otherwise, nor do they understand that there even should be. 
and we end up with a whole bunch of people thinking that they're saved when they may not actually be. So when I say that faith is the effect of regeneration, I would say it this way. Uh, well, actually, R.C. Sproul said it this way. True regeneration makes it impossible not to believe. Okay, and there are scriptures to back that up. And keeping in mind, regeneration then is an act and the plan of the Father. So we'll look at those two things. So if true regeneration makes it impossible not to believe, we would look for our scriptural justification in John chapter 6, verse 37, where Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So he leaves no room for exception there. All that the Father gives me will come to me. It's a certainty. It's a done deal. And because they're given by the Father, and because they genuinely come to him, because they're given by the Father, then he will never turn away anyone that the Father deemed one of his own elect to be called unto faith and repentance. And regeneration then actually becomes the plan of the Father. John 6, 44, and 65 say that, so I'll combine those two if you don't mind. John 6, 44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And then 65, and he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So you see, it's not our choice. It actually has to be granted by the Father to come to Christ. So we don't make a decision for Christ. The Father makes a decision for us. The Spirit helps us to make the decision for Christ, who will turn away no one who comes to him via that proper plan in that specific order. So how do we come to him? Well, that's what, kind of where we are today. That's faith. So Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 is fairly explicit on that. First thing we have to understand is that faith is not something we decide to do. Faith does not emanate or originate in the heart of man. It is a gift from God himself. That's what Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 when he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Well, what is the gift of God? The grace of God that produces faith necessary for man to come and be acceptable before God is a gift supplied by God himself. So, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And just in case we weren't clear, verse 9, not a result of works so that no one may boast. And so what do we do? We boast. I accepted Jesus into my life. That's a boast and a work. It's something we did to cause something to come about. So Paul is pretty explicit saying, this is not the result of any work that you can do. So it's not just works like in... I go to church a lot, you know, or I teach Sunday schools, or, you know, I give to the church, or, you know, it's anything on your part that would cause this to come about is actually a work, even if it happens to be a belief or a profession. 
and God will have none of that because the glory of salvation belongs to God. He's creating a people unto himself. So if faith is the gift of God, then that is a gift that enables you to believe. Okay? So um, we look at it this way. God regenerates. We believe then in Christ alone for salvation. And this is where I always kind of get the side eye occasionally. It's like reading the Bible is insufficient. Okay? Knowing doctrine is insufficient. The Pharisees knew doctrine inside and out, backwards and forwards, yet Jesus flat out said they're not saved. So it has to be something outside of this intellectual ascent. It has to be a supernatural event that occurs in the life of the believer. And knowing doctrine is really, really important because I believe that the desire to know doctrine is also a natural result of genuine salvation. I mean, how can you say that you love God and then you don't want to know anything about him? You don't want to, you're not interested in his message. You don't care how these things work. You can't. I mean, that doesn't work in real life if you're married to your spouse and you go, yeah, I'm married, but you know, I don't really want to know anything about them, the likes, dislikes, you know, how they work. You know, no, I don't want to know that. We don't do that. That's silly. So you wouldn't do it with God either. So what it comes down to, salvation, is just simply this. It's not necessarily whether we all have a perfect understanding of doctrine. You know, a lot of churches, and now we go to the other side, and I'll do my criticism of some of the Reformed churches that treat you like you can't be saved unless you can recite backwards the plan of justification. You know, um, unless you've read like the nine-volume set that was produced on justification. No, what saves a person is just this simple statement. Are you trusting in Christ alone for your salvation? If you're trusting in Christ alone, nothing else, no outside works, no churches, no nothing, Christ alone for your salvation, then salvation is given and the byproduct of that genuine belief is all the rest of the stuff. The love for doctrine, the understanding that's given to you by God to comprehend these things, and everything else that comes with it. That's what genuine faith is. So that produces this question, which I'll call, uh, well, actually I'll say this, Ian Murray called it this, the warrant of faith. You know, like police come say, I have a warrant for your arrest. Okay, I got a document here that says, you know, you're coming with me. So how's that work in faith? Let's simplify the question. How may we know that we are saved? That's the warrant of faith. The question, how may we know that we are saved? Well, first of all, it's because there is a universal call from God of the gospel offer to all men. Not just the elect. The call goes out to all men to repent and believe. This is a command from God. It's not a suggestion. It's not good advice. It's a command directly from God. So where do we get that? Um, well, Matthew 11 and 28 says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Okay, so no restriction implied there. But let's say that there is one, then we would go to John 6.37, where Jesus says, 
All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. If you're coming to Christ out of a genuine heart for Christ, you will not be turned away by Christ. Therefore, you may know that your salvation is genuine if you have a genuine desire for Christ. And we'll talk more about it as that goes on. Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31 says this, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So who is he not commanding to repent? No one. He commands all people everywhere to repent. Verse 31, Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, Christ, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So again, if you're coming to Christ, you're heeding the command of God. And you're being given assurance by God that you will be allowed to come and a guarantee from Jesus Christ that he will not turn you away. So we can know that we are saved. If we believe in the second and most important, important excuse me, point here, the sufficiency of Christ, the all-sufficiency of the Savior. So we have to consider what actually happened and who it was affected by. Okay, so salvation happened and it was affected by God himself in the person of the Son, Jesus Christ. Therefore, his life and death has what we would call infinite value. It is uh, an unmeasurable value because God himself is infinite and unmeasurable. So his sacrifice is of infinite value, value and able to save all men. Who actually are saved is the elect, but he is able to save all. Okay? There's nothing impossible for God. So it's not the possibility, and this way, like uh, Ian Murray here, he said this, it is not the possibility of salvation that's offered to the lost but it's the Savior himself who is offered to the lost. Okay? So if you're lost, the offer is Christ. Salvation is the byproduct of the work of Christ. So you can't have the work without having the originator of the work. So he's got it exactly right. What we're not offering is the possibility of salvation. What we're offering is Christ who offers salvation. Don't forget Christ. He is all. There is no place that you can not have him and make this work. So he went on to say, we entrust ourselves to him, not because we believe we have been saved, but as lost sinners in order that we may be saved. See the very slight distinction, but it's an important one. Once again, we entrust ourselves to him, Christ, not because we believe we have been saved, but as lost sinners in order that we may be saved. You must have Christ before you can have salvation. You cannot offer salvation devoid of Christ preceding the offer in any way, shape, or form. 
So if that's true, then we can have the full confidence that all who call on him will be saved. Any questions on any of this so far? Opinions, comments, anything? Jump in, because I'm warning you again. If you don't talk, I will. Yeah. <laughs> so. You guys all got that? No questions at all? Wow, okay. All right. Then let's look at the nature of faith. So what is true faith? Okay. Well, we've, like in most other things, condensed faith to just this. Well, I believe in Jesus. Next time someone says, I believe in Jesus, ask them what they believe about in Jesus. And then you'll get anywhere from blank stares to a thousand possible answers. So if you're getting, you know, a blank stare at worst, or a number of conflicting answers at best, then how can we be assured that what we believe is actually correct? So we have to know what faith actually is. And faith is actually a three-part thing. I think I might have even referred to this a little bit last week, but that's okay because it's important. So Sproul lays it out like this. He says, the nature, uh, or I'm sorry, the nature of faith is actually three things. It is knowledge, conviction, and trust. And you must have all three of those. Any one in themselves is insufficient. You can say, like the Jehovah's Witnesses say, well, we trust in Jesus, yet their Jesus is radically different in character than yours, hopefully. You can say, I've memorized all the books of the Bible. That's insufficient. The Pharisees had done that and could not attain salvation. So you see, all these things are critical. So first of all, knowledge. This is doctrine. This is, by definition, us knowing who Christ is, what he has done, and what he is able to do. If you don't know those things, then you cannot actually know the plan of salvation in its fullness. So where do I get that? Romans 10, 17. And I'm hoping you wrote that down. I'm going to look at it. Here it is. Where Paul says, so faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So where does this gift of faith come from? By hearing the word of God. Why are we here every Sunday morning? To hear the word of God. And the more you hear the word of God, the greater your faith is built up. Your faith is not built up by some self-willed determination to believe even harder than you believed yesterday. Because you can't generate your own faith. God is the one that supplies faith. In his condition, according to Romans, for supplying faith is by hearing his word. So now you see the problem if you're in a church where they never quite get around to preaching the Word of God. Or a church that preaches about how wonderful you are without maybe a quick passing reference to Christ. It's not about how wonderful we are, it's about how wonderful He is. It's actually how bad we are which makes Him even more wonderful in His own personality. In that He still received us because we're not built up, we're not deserving of these things whatsoever. It's his work, his credit, and it all has to go to him. So, 
Scripture is not enough. Okay? It's the byproducts of these things. It's not just reading Scripture. You know? It's, first of all, reading Scripture, and then the next two things, conviction and trust. So the second part, of course, would be conviction or assent. Okay, assent is the word that's normally used in the theological circles. Conviction is what we're referring to. So what do I mean by that? I mean that we must believe what we have read. Okay, again, people will come to you, and you've probably had this happen to you before when you're witnessing to lost friends or family who say things like, well, I've read the Bible. You know, there, that's living proof of what I'm talking about. Okay? You read the Bible, so you think you're saved. I've read the Bible, I've come to the opposite conclusion. So apparently just reading the Bible is not enough. It's not enough to produce saving faith. We need to have the assent or the conviction that what we read is true. And we have to be really careful with that because it's frequent in the church nowadays to set aside lots of things in the scripture that make us uncomfortable. Um, there's an entire segment, and I'm not even sure why they're called this, but among evangelicals, they're called the evangelical homosexuals. You know, that says, well, no, the Bible doesn't really say what it says about homosexuals, and here's a whole long list of excuses about why it doesn't say what it says. And then we're told in many of these churches and in many of their conventions that we should accept that and embrace them as brothers and sisters in Christ. You can't do that because it's setting aside something that God has said. Or, you know, let's not make it so obvious. Let's go closer to home. How about our personal behavior? How about how we treat each other? How about what we do for and against one another? How about forgiveness? How about genuine Christian love? How about all those things? Yeah. Well, you know, if you knew that guy like I know that guy, then you wouldn't like him either. Except that if he is actually really a genuine Christian, unless you're getting ready to deny that, then Christ gave his life for that guy. So if he thought him worthy to die, how can we treat each other with anything less than that? See, so we do set aside those things willingly and unknowingly sometimes, but God's word is not pick and choose. You know, it's not the Chinese menu, one from column A, one from column B. You have to take it all or you get none. So conviction, assent, we must believe what we know. But even that is not enough. Okay? Because we all say that we believe in God, but then when circumstances or trials or tribulations hit sometimes, our belief gets a little shaky and sometimes disappears altogether. I'm not saying all the time. I'm saying everybody in here has experienced this at one time or another, where you've just thought, you know, I'm just wasting my time here, you know. If God is real, why are these things are happening, you know. Whatever, if somebody dies, a child dies, or somebody can, and you begin to question those things. Well, that, become, that brings us to number three, in the third part of genuine saving faith, which is trust. 
Okay, so it's knowledge, it's conviction, and it's trust. And what do I mean by trust? I'm going to go back and take Ian Murray's uh, definition again. He says, trust in Christ is simply this. It is full commitment to Christ and total reliance on him to deliver no matter what your situation. So the situation cannot govern your thoughts. It has to be full and total trust in Christ that whatever the outcome of the situation is, that that was the most ideal thing that could happen. It's not what we want to happen. That's where we begin to have these doubts is because God doesn't give us what we want. You know, we're, we're the little kids that don't understand why they can't have candy before dinner. You know, he knows more than you. He sees all things. We see nothing accurately because we're fallen creatures by nature. We're clouded by sin. We only see partially. We don't see fully until we see him. That's what the scripture says also. So we um, have to look at salvation that way. Salvation is not a cooperative effort. This is actually the big difference between what you know, we would preach as Reformed Baptists versus what maybe Roman Catholics would preach. Um, the Roman Catholic Church uh, defines faith with only the first two, knowledge and assent, that you have heard about Christ, you have knowledge of who he is, and that you believe in him. But because they reject the concept of trust, Roman Catholics more often than not are going to tell you things, and believe me, this is true because my wife is former Catholic. We've been to a lot of Catholic funerals, and I've heard the same thing many, many times from the staunch Roman Catholics in there. Well, I hope we did enough. I hope we were good enough. You know, I'm going to try to be even better so I can make it too, that kind of thing. So there's no trust in Christ here. There's knowledge and assent. Yeah, we know Christ. We believe in Christ, you know, to whatever degree. We won't even get into that. But trust is the issue. You know, that he is who he says he is. That he is able to do what he said that he would do. And even if it's not apparent to us that he's doing that, it's trusting that he's actually doing exactly what he said. Knowledge, assent, and trust. So now we have a good working understanding of faith, hopefully. Now do we have any questions or comments? Linda, thank you, finally. <laughs> Yeah, and so think of it this way. Once again, trust then is not believing 
that God, Christ, whoever you want to attach the name to, will give you the outcome you desire. That's not trust. Okay, that's selfish interest. Genuine trust is, is that whatever the outcome, I know that that's the best way to go because God said it is because that was the outcome. You know, it's Job. Though he slay me, I will trust. Yeah. So if God takes your life, you have to trust that that was the best possible thing that could happen. All things considered, in the sight of an all-seeing God, who never does anything to harm his own, and only works toward their best interest, even when you don't realize it. Really? I know that's what I'm talking to some people they believe in God, they'll more or less deny the supernatural aspect of salvation. Some will even say, you know, it's nonsense. Now, I'll reference them to John 3, you must be born again. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can't just join a church and be a Christian. And they look at me and just blow their eyes or say it's nonsense. I think that's a big problem with them broader evangelicalism to deny what the supernatural reality of salvation, justification. Yeah, and unfortunately I think it's more prevalent in the evangelical church today than anything else. It's just based on feelings and sight and personal desires and then we form an entire version of God that's to our own liking regardless of whether that's the scriptural uh, description of him or not. Ben? And now, going back to trusting Christ, Christ says that when we go through trials and tribulations, He will never give us more than we can handle. So that's, 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 that's a very good assurance that if we really trust in Him, we'll be able to be fine, you know, because we will not well, get more than we can handle, you know. I would say it this way, you know, we, we're poor definers of what it is we can handle. Because people all the time say, this is more than I can do. Yeah. So that's kind of not trust. Then, <laughs> it, you know, genuine trust is whatever the circumstances that are working out, that Christ is in it, and it is for your good. And ultimately, even more importantly, for his glory. Salvation is for the glory of God. We benefit by it, but the primary purpose is for the glorification of God. Vanya? Oh, so that last part you said about trust. How do you then, I guess, reconcile it with God's perfect and permissive will? And somebody who says, um, maybe if I had done something a different way, the outcome might have been different. Like, it's almost like there are different paths to get to a particular end. If I went this way, maybe it would have turned out a certain way. If I went this other way, maybe. So how do you reconcile those three things with the last part? Yeah, well, those, I think, come under trust because when we start playing the if-then game, if I had done, then this would have happened. Well, there's actually no possible way that you can know that. You know, that's better summed up in the old phrase, hindsight is twenty-twenty. you know? We see it perfectly once it's happened, or at least we think we do. In reality, we don't even see it perfectly then. And just say, well, if it would have went this way and it would have done that way, then who's actually working things out then? You know, you 
yes. If you had done something differently and you would have gotten a different outcome, then you are the one who's working the plan. Therefore, God is left out of the picture. There's no consideration for the plan of God or the trust that you know, the trust in God because it's all if I had done this or I had not done that. What we did, we did. You know, God ordains all things according to the scriptures. And is he so small a God that he can't fix these things on our behalf when we mess up? Not if, it's when, because our whole lives, I think you would honestly have to say, has been like one colossal mess up. <laughs> because we have constant problems. You know, so, you know, if you think that's a good way to go, then you can keep playing if-then. If you really believe that there is a God, and that there's God who does all these things on behalf of his people, and that his will is perfect in our lives, and that he's always working ultimately for the good of his people and the glory of himself, then there's never room for the if-then statement. Lynn? No, there's a plan A with God. That's it. You know, he is unchangeable. That's, we teach that as one of his attributes. He's immutable. He does not change. The scripture, I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. So his plan cannot be thwarted by man. And if it can, then he's not a God that's worthy of your worship. I mean, if you can you know, change his plan, then who's really God? You know, he's worthless as a God and you've taken his place. You cannot usurp him. He's bigger than you, he's more powerful than you, and his plan will come to fruition because he ordains all things. It goes back to the question about, you know, knowing the future. Again, we've talked about this before. God doesn't know the future because he looked into his crystal ball in heaven and saw how things were going to play out. God knows the future because he has planned the future. The future is known to him because he's determined eons ago that this is what would happen. Debbie, were you going to say something? Well, just that from our standpoint, the standpoint of me here sitting in the view, I, as far as plan A or plan B, from this standpoint, I, I can, I can, think about and decide, hmm, I'm going to do this or I'm going to do this, and I must decide what it is that I'm going to do or not going to do. So from our standpoint, otherwise um, you'd just go nuts thinking, well, what is it that God is going to uh, make me do here? You know, but I don't even need to think about it because he's got it all figured out and it's just going to happen the way he wants it anyway, and we'll throw up our hands in the air. You would so be amazed. We, I'm sorry. Yeah, so, so, so we absolutely have free will from the standpoint don't don't uh, jump all over my case there I know you won't of using the, the chair and I think that yeah and I think that many people think that that's what free will is um, it's just they don't understand the other part on God's side but, yeah. but you know we are responsible to make choices we're commanded to come to God and we do that mm -hmm. we do it 
Yes, yeah. we know God. And we make those us. choices in obedience to the commands that he's given. Like, for example, he says, don't steal. So if you're standing in the store going, you know, if I had a hundred bucks more, I could get this iPad. Well, you know, there's nobody looking, you know, and they got lots of them here. Then, right. Well, and you make a choice. And we're responsible. And you can make that choice, you know. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think that that's the point of that we're you could confuse yourself to the point where you're turning around in circles going, what would I give up? You don't know how close to the truth you are on that, because I came out of a Pentecostal background originally, and it is kind of like that there, you know. I've actually had people obsess and pray over what they, how they should dress, you know, what, you know, what they should put on that day, what dress, what suit, what shirt, that kind of thing, because they want to be in the will of God. You know, it's like, how do you live your life like that? The answer is, you can't. Because it's a nothing but second guesses, because you're always trying to determine things that you can't possibly know. So what do you do? You just do stuff. And you do it according to the commands of God. And trust then that if you do it wrong, he's there to help. <laughs> and that if you do it right, that's what it should have been done. So you do stuff. Rodney and then Ben. Well, I was just going to you know, add to that, because like, you know, the lot is cast, but it's every decision that's from the Lord. We, we make decisions, and just like you said, if we make them uh, with, with the knowledge of uh, what He would have us to do, abiding by, you know, trying to keep, keep in, in, in thought and our consciences, you know, clear with the commandments, that when we make a decision, the, the outcome is for our good and His glory. Even if the decision we make turns out really bad for us, uh, ultimately it's, it's, it's His plan, it's not our plan. So uh, Him being the Creator, knowing the beginning from the end, we, we tend to think, that, well, if I would have done something, this would have turned out differently. Well, it turned out the way that it did, according to the way the Lord had. You know, right. And because it turned out the way it did, all you've got is, now what do I do from here forward? You can't do anything that happened five minutes ago. It's done, you know? I always recommend Star Trek to understand these provisions. <laughs> I don't know how many Star Trek fans there are in there. A lot of people know I am one. There was a show, uh, Star Trek Next Generation, where the Enterprise is flying along through space and they see a shuttle, you know, a little small two-man uh, pod adrift. So, and it's one of their own, so they pull it in. And inside the shuttle is their captain, who's also with them at the time. <laughs> and so, what they end up figuring out is that somehow, through some temporal event, you know, he was thrown into the future, and then from the future back to the past, and the two worlds are colliding. And the guy they brought in says, the Enterprise has been destroyed. And then he passes out, they can't do anything. So they have this big meeting, so what do we do with this now? Do we keep on going? Uh, you know, but if we would change what we're doing right now, then that wouldn't happen. And then somebody else says, but how do we know that we didn't have this discussion already and we did change it and that's why it happened? You know, so they're unknowable things. That's the whole point. And that's, you know, maybe a bad example, but I'm a Star Trek fan. And what I'm talking about here. Yeah. You cannot know these things. God knows all these things. So what makes more sense? For me to worry and obsess over these things? 
or just trust that God is going to do what God is going to do. <laughs> and? Yeah, just simply put it, when we make decision A or B, what pleases us and what pleases God. If we just make that choice and we choose what pleases God, then according to our knowledge, that's the decision we should make. Right. We just got it as simple as A and B, you know, and we always want to make decisions what pleases us because that's the flesh that pulls us to. So then doctrine make our becomes important. Then, so. Yeah, and what is doctrine? It is the knowledge of who God is. This is why doctrine is important. Yeah, so the more you study scripture, the more you know who God is and what pleases God, and you'd be amazed at how that helps you to act accordingly. Yeah, see, that's what we personally prefer is irrelevant. Did Christ personally prefer going to the cross? No. I'm going to say, I'm going to take a wild guess here and say, probably not, mostly because he said that. You know? But you trust. Trust that the plan of God is the plan that there is. So, Jim? Yeah, uh, back to the question that was asked, uh, you know, what do we do with God's sovereignty? And then, you know, we make people saying, well, if I would have done this, it might have been different. And the answer really is that God ordains the ends and the means. And so, you know, if you, if you don't go to work for a week and you get fired, it's legitimate to say, if I would have went to work, I would have got fired. Because God ordained, if you got fired, that you were going to be fired. But he ordained that the means by which you would be fired is not going to work. So God ordains the ends and the means. So there's legitimacy if we understand that within mm -hmm. the right biblical theological framework. Yeah, which comes back under... Knowing what God requires and doing what He requires. And He talks about all these things in Scripture. But unless we read and study Scripture and come to know the mind of God, then we're not aware of these things sometimes and we make bad decisions and get adverse consequences. And sometimes you make right decisions and get adverse consequences, and that's where trust comes in. So we only got like a minute to cover repentance, but that's okay. Because I thought faith was, you know, far important, far more important to understand here. So let's look at a couple of things real quickly on repentance, and I'm going to. What? Gary, I'm sorry. Oh, go ahead. That's right. I want participation. I just say Christ engaged in a little bit of that. If then, in order to, I think, warn Capernaum. And uh, he says, And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have been. It, it would have remained until this day. Mm -hmm. But to say 
But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. And it kind of reminds me of Hebrews, uh, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there's a great if-then statement that demonstrates exactly what I'm talking about. Not only that, that's a good one, but think of Christ's statement from his own lips. If it be possible, then let this cup pass from me. But then we go immediately to trust. But nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. So from a personal standpoint, you don't want this. From a practical standpoint, you understand that God's plan is the best. Even when it's a horrible future awaiting you. For the time being, anyway. So repentance. One more phrase that I took here. Ian Murray says, Repentance, then, is just simply this. Repentance unto life, to salvation, is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin, does with grief and hatred of sin turn from it to God and seeks obedience. That's like the greatest definition of repentance of all time. Because you know what repentance is mostly in churches? Say you're sorry. You know? Just like you know when your kids are fighting, you tell him you're sorry. Okay, I'm sorry. He's not sorry, okay? It's not saying you're sorry. One more time. Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin, does with grief and hatred of sin turn from it to God and seek obedience. Or just simply it's a change of heart, mind, and will. How do we know that? A couple of quick scriptures, Acts 2, 37 and 38. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? This is Peter's great speech when he talked about you just killed the Messiah. Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Or Acts 5.31, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Notice who's giving the repentance. So even repentance is a gift from God. It is granted to you by God out of his mercy. And if you want to make sure that it's a change, Paul says in Romans 6, 2 and 6, where he asks the rhetorical question, hopefully, well, shall we keep on sinning? And he answers himself, by no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So that's absolutely those things that we just talked about, the change of heart, change of mind, change of will. So we'd sum it all up in saying this, salvation then is not a momentary act whereby you make a decision for Christ, but it's an abiding attitude of trust and confidence directed to Christ. That's all I've got. So we get any closing comments. 
Okay, let's meet back here in about 10, 12 minutes.